church. How are we? Well, I'm excited to be here. I'm in a good mood today. I don't, I don't know why, but today is an, excep- an exceptional day. Today's been uh, just a refreshing day for me. This week was kind of crazy. We had sick kids uh, all week long. Next week is going to be a crazy week. Looking forward to the busyness just of life. But today is a good day because I am with God's people and the presence of God is here. And I believe lives are going to change today because of the truth of the Word of God. Uh, my name is Joey. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if you're new here with us, we want to say thank you for, for coming today. We have a philosophy here at Vertical Life Church. We believe everyone matters to God. Everyone. So it doesn't matter where you come from, who you, whose family you grew up in, things you've done. You matter to God. So much so that he gave Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to die on a cross for you so that you could have new life in him and have uh, your salvation secured in eternity in heaven forever and forever, forever in a relationship with him that will just radically transform your life. And so we believe that's why the church is here. We exist to tell people about the wonderful news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we thank you for being with us today. Uh, We are going to be back in our, our series. Really, this has kind of been a journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew chapter 19. Uh, as well as if you have the digital Bible with you, you can uh, navigate now. And as you're navigating to Matthew, if you want to hop on over to Facebook and check in, give us a shout out, let people know that God is doing some wonderful things in this place and in your life through the Ministry of Vertical Life Church, we'd appreciate that. We try to engage as many people with the gospel as we can and uh, just simple acts of, uh, of just uh, posting on uh, social media is one of those ways we can engage people with the love of Christ. And so uh, we are in Matthew chapter 19. We've been calling this series Confessions of a Sinner because that's what Matthew was. He was a sinner. In the land of Judea, in the time of Christ, Matthew's job was a tax collector. And if we hate the IRS today, think about back then when they had permission to rip people off. Right? We, we think we get ripped off today with our system. Imagine a time where the Roman government had conquered the land, they empowered local people to collect taxes and said, hey, as long as we get our percentage, I don't care what else you require from the people. I mean, think about the animosity. And so tax collectors were rejects of society. They were considered betrayers and and those that had committed treason against their fellow countrymen. And so Matthew was a reject. He was despised. He was considered one of the worst sinners that there could be, and yet Jesus Christ one day walks up to him and says, hey, you know what? I want you. And that's a demonstration of the love of God because it doesn't matter where we come from, what we've done, Jesus still looks at us and says, hey, I want you. I want you. I want you to come follow me. I want to show you the things, the good things I have in store for you, the great plans that I have for your life. And this is kind of Matthew's account of what he experienced as he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And we've been over the course of almost a, a year now looking into this gospel of Matthew. Uh, this is our 24th uh, sermon in this series, and we are in Matthew chapter 19. And today we are going to be talking about, really unpacking, a very controversial subject in our culture today. This is the providence of God because. You know, I did, a year ago, I didn't plan out what was going to happen in the world so that my messages could match up with that. It just so happens that God in his providence kind of brings 
uh, these subjects to the forefront in the life of our church as we're looking at the world and our response to the world in America. And there has been, if you've watched the news at all, there's been a lot of coverage as of late as to a couple of laws that have been passed in, in a few states, in Georgia, Mississippi, and North Carolina, the Religious Protection Acts. And uh, a lot of different uh, controversies have been stirred up here in America, uh, but not just here in America. It's not just a national controversy now. It's now made its way overseas. Matter of fact, I believe London and France, in their traveler's guide, as they're kind of instructing people about what to expect as they leave their home country and go to foreign countries. When it comes to America, they're now warning their countrymen about going to places like Mississippi and North Carolina for fear of a hostile uh, environment where people may not be welcomed and mistreated uh, based upon their uh, gender identity and or their sexual orientation. And uh, was uh, this past week, our president was in London, and he even, before um, uh, a forum there, a, a town hall, I believe, he uh, even said that he believed these laws were, were wrong and needed to be overturned. Now, these religious freedom acts, protection acts, are intended to guard the right of religious institutions like Bible colleges and, and, and other, uh, like even the church and religious people within those institutions um, to follow their convictions, their spiritual and religious convictions, without receiving any form of reprisal from the federal, the state, or the local government in the wake of the same-sex marriage decision by the Supreme Court. And again, this would affect companies like Hobby Lobby, would affect uh, cake bakers and florists and, and wedding chapels and the like. And I, and I understand that there are many people that are affected by this issue on different sides of the aisle. You may have friends and family members who uh, struggle with um, identity issues or, or, or consider themselves homosexual or a part of the LGBTQ uh, group. And so this may directly or indirectly affect these laws. And I don't want to be insensitive today. That's not my intention at all. I myself have a family member who is openly gay, and so I know the sensitivities that surround this subject. My intention is not to be insensitive or inflammatory, but it's important as followers of Jesus Christ that as we look at the world and what's going on around us, we look at it through the lens of the scripture. We look at it through the lens of the Bible. Here at Vertical Life Church, we have the core value. We have six core values. One of our core values is unyielding truth, which means we believe that we don't change the Bible to affirm the way we want to live and the things we want to believe. Rather, we change our lives so that we are in agreement with what the Bible says we are to believe and what the Bible says we are how to live our lives. And so this is one of our core values. This is one of the things we hold deeply in our hearts here at Vertical Life Church. Uh, but these laws, these religious protection laws, they were meant to protect the cake bakers, the florists, and other institutions uh, to keep the government from being able to bring sentences or um, reprisals against them when they refuse service to these different groups. We can think of recently how Kim Davis, the county clerk, was uh, jailed for eight days because she refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples. This is the type of thing that these laws are intended to protect. But the backlash in social media, the backlash uh, on the news, the backlash in social pressures has been incredible. Uh, famous musicians like Brian Adams, you know Brian Adams' famous songs? You know, the summer of 69, 
right? Everything you, uh, I do, I do it for you. These anthems of the past that we rock out when no one's looking around and we're just getting in the shower, you know what I mean? I mean, the, the, these guys that we, we've listened to forever, they're refusing to perform now in these states that have passed these laws. Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA, no longer sings in one of the states in the USA. Uh, so we have several artists, like Pearl Jam as well, that have chosen to boycott these states. Movie and film companies that regularly shoot movies in these states have decided no longer to shoot films. PayPal was going to open up new corporate offices in North Carolina. They've chosen not to open up those corporate offices. And so they are essentially doing the same thing that they are angry about religious people doing at the same time. And Ellen DeGeneres this week, I, I think Ellen is one of the funniest people on the planet. Uh, this week in one of her shows, she opened with her monologue coming out against these same uh, laws of North Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi. And, and it was, I believe, humble and it was quite funny. But even though she, she was against them, she said this very thing, and this is one of the things we want to talk about today. She said these laws are the very definition of discrimination. And we hear that word a lot, discrimination, bigotry, intolerance. And I don't think we know what those words mean. I think we think they mean something else other than what they mean because we use these words a lot, but you know, we use them to kind of condemn or belittle or uh, vilify someone else that, that it seems to have a harsh stance against something we hold dear. And so because religious people, namely Christians, are bringing this to the forefront in our society, the question is not only are these laws discriminatory, but are Christians, is Christianity discriminatory? And that leads us to even ask the question, is God discriminatory? Does God discriminate against other people, specifically people in the LGBT community? But before we answer that question, we need to define some terms. If you have your worship guide with you in there, there's some notes. I'm going to uh, put some definitions on the screen, and you, you can write them down. Um, basically, I looked these up on Google, so it's not some magic hidden place that you can't find these definitions. But we need to understand what these words mean to determine what it is we actually think and believe about this subject. And so if we want to look at that, that first word, the word that is being used, discrimination, we need to look at its definition. And the word discrimination simply means the unjust or prejudicial treatment of a person based on their race, sex, creed, religion, etc. So the unjust or prejudicial treatment of a person based on something what is considered out of their control. Now, there's two key words in this definition of discrimination. There's prejudice and there's unjust. The word prejudice means a preconceived opinion that is not based on reason or actual experience. For example, you walk into the room, we've never met, I've never seen you before, I automatically just don't like you. For whatever reason, in my mind, I think I don't like that person. I have no reason or basis for that judgment. That's just my judgment. That would be considered prejudice because there's no reason or experience that would help determine that opinion. Now, the word unjust is the opposite of the word just. And the word just simply means behaving according to what is morally right and fair. Now, that's what people seem to want, that last word and that definition of just. People seem to want things that are fair. If you have children that at any point were toddlers, 
and they had siblings, I'm sure you heard some arguments over things being fair, right? Right? You give them an ice cream, well, I should get to have an ice cream, or that's not what? Fair, right? This is what seems to be the understanding. And so when we think about discrimination, we think about uh, these laws, we equate fairness with discrimination. If something's not fair, then we accuse that entity or that thing of discrimination. But what does fair actually mean? Well, the word fair simply means according to standards or rules. It does not mean equal. It means according to standards or rules. Synonyms to the word fair are simply just, equitable, honest, upright, or honorable. So the word fair in and of itself, it begs you to come up with some type of moral standard in order to determine if something is fair or not. So the only way to know what is fair, you have to know what is moral because it implies a standard of morality. And the only way you can know what is moral is you have to determine what that standard is. In order to know if something is just or unjust, you have to know what the standard of morality is. Now, if you were to ask an atheist or someone who studies evolutionary science, they would tell you that morality is evolutionary. That over the millions and millions of years of human existence and evolution, that morals just kind of evolved over time based upon what the majority of people determined to be mutually exclusive or beneficial. So we didn't want to kill each other off. This is survival of the fittest. We wanted our species to survive. And so we developed these morals in order to guide the behaviors of human existence. Now, if you think about that, that is a subjective form of morality. That means there really is no real right or wrong. There's no absolute standard. Everything just kind of is based upon what the majority of people deem to be mutually beneficial. But if you think about that form of uh, morality, that concept, that frame of mind, we could look back into the time of World War II in Nazi Germany, and we could say that Hitler's actions in the Holocaust against the Jews was a just action. Because according to the majority of people in that area, that was a mutually beneficial decision. So if you think about a standard of morality that is subjective, something that evolves over time, depending on what the majority seems to be mutually beneficial, we could therefore justify any type of behavior because it has to do with what the majority deems to be right. And that's a scary place to be. That is a scary frame of mind because it won't be long with that type of a mindset that the majority will deem a group of people to not be mutually beneficial. That's what happened to the Jews. That's what happened in Cambodia. That's what happened under Mussolini. That's what happened under Stalin. That's what happened under all the dictators that we see. That's what's happening right now in the Middle East with the, the Islam attack and persecution of Christians. They're being looked at as not being mutually beneficial, and so they are justifying their actions against wiping out those civilizations, those genocides. That's what a, uh, a subjective moral standard will ultimately lead you to. And so that's why our founders did not create a subjective moral standard when they began our nation. We have to line ourselves up to something that does not change, that does not waver. We have to change 
uh, under an objective standard, if we have an objective standard, we have to change our morals ourselves to line up with that standard as opposed to letting our culture uh, determine what that standard is. And our founding fathers of our nation, in the Constitution and Bill of Rights of the United States of America, they name what that moral standard is. In the Bill of Rights, it says, our creator has endowed upon us certain unalienable rights. Therefore, they named God is the author of our human rights. Therefore, God is also the author of morality. He is the standard of morality. He is the moral lawgiver because he is the bequeather of our human rights. And because God gives us our human rights, they cannot be taken away, no matter what the majority or the culture deems to be mutually beneficial. These rights cannot be stripped away from us. So right now in the United States of America, in our culture, when it comes to law, when it comes to right and wrong, we look to our Constitution to determine what is moral in this nation. We use the Constitution to determine what we can and cannot do. But this creates a problem. Because if you remember arguments about separation of church and state, the First Amendment of the United States of America's Constitution says that Congress will not establish a national church, right? If you think the context of when this document was written, the pilgrims fled Europe, because why? Because the church, the Catholic church, had become institutionalized and was also a political entity, and it forced individuals to adhere to its religious standards and beliefs, some of which were burned at the stake because they refused to adhere to such standards. And so uh, the founding fathers didn't want that kind of a volatile climate, or a politi- a politically religious climate in our nation. And so in the First Amendment, they declared that the government cannot establish a state church. And some equate that or believe that that statement means that all religion has to be removed from the equation of our government system. But that is false. Because by naming God as the bequeather of human rights, it actually implies that religion and faith is to be part of our governmental system. It's to be part of our, our, our governmental system. We can't establish a national religion, but God and faith is to be part of the foundation for our country. And so the question is, well, which God do we look to? If you're not a believer, if you're an atheist, if you're an agnostic, which God do you look to? Do you look to Buddha? Do you look to Hinduism? Do you look, look to Islam? Which God do we look to? And this is where knowing your American history is vital. I know so many people are like, well, I slept through all my history classes. I just, you know, I just couldn't stand that. History was actually one of my favorite subjects because you, when you learn where you come from, you understand where you're going. And, and so uh, this is where knowing American history is so vital because when our nation was formed, the type of culture we had was a theonomous culture. That's a big word for this early in the morning. But theonomous basically is two parts. Theos, it means God, and onomous means to be governed by. So theonomous culture simply means it was governed by God. And we understand that because the majority of people, if not all of people that came to our nation in those first 13 colonies were all Christians of some kind. Whether it was the Quakers, whether it was the Puritans, whether it was the the Catholics or the Baptists or Methodists or Lutherans, they were all Christian of some kind and therefore had that in common. It was made up of multiple kinds of Christians. And so when you look at the Constitution and you ask the question, who's God? You look back at who was there that authored the actual document. 
and our fourth president of the United States, James Madison, on June 28, 1813, he wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson. And here's what James Madison, our president, said to Mr. Jefferson. He said, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young gentlemen could unite. And these principles could only be intended by them in their address or by me and my answer. And what were those general principles? I answered the general principles of Christianity in which all these sects were united and the general principles of English and American liberty in which all those young men united and which had united all parties in America in majority sufficient to assert and maintain her independence. In other words, what united everybody together was their Christian faith because they were believers. They were uniting together under God through Jesus Christ. He continues, he says, Now I will avow and I then believe and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, and those principles of liberty are as unalterable as human nature in our terrestrial mundane system. James Madison was saying Christianity not only united us together, but the principles of the Christian faith are so intertwined with America that they cannot be separated, even though some would like to do that. And some would say, well, not all the founding fathers were Christians. We have evidence. We have documentation. And that is true, one of which was Benjamin Franklin. You know, he's the guy that flew the kite with the key and he got electrocuted. That guy, right? He was not a Christian. He was considered a deist. He believed in God, but he did not believe Jesus Christ necessarily was God. But even Benjamin Franklin said at one time, he said, the moral and religious system which Jesus Christ transmitted to us is the best the world has ever seen or can see. So even those that were not committed Christians as the founding fathers, they still knew and believed that the Christian faith was the pathway to the greatest civilization that will ever be known on the planet. James Madison, again at another time, talking about our Constitution and how we are to navigate our political system, he said, "...do not separate text from historical background." If you do, you will have perverted and subverted the Constitution, which can only end in a distorted, bastardized form of illegitimate government. The Constitution and Christianity have to be hand in hand. When you remove Christianity from the equation, you no longer have the government that was founded on July 4th, 1776, when we won our independence. And the reason why is that religious freedom, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the constitutional rule of law, all have its base in a moral code that comes from the Christian faith. So even though we are not forcing all American citizens to be Christian as a state church, if you do not understand the word of God and the Christian faith, you cannot understand what is supposed to be right and wrong in our American society. And so the reason why we're fighting these battles about marriage, about abortion rights, and other moral issues in our nation, in our political system, is because what was once a theonomous culture where the majority of people were Christians has over these 300 years been slipping away, further and further away from the faith. And it's no longer a theonomous culture. It's shifted now to what is called an autonomous culture, where we are self-governed. And you know this, because when you talk to people about morality and morals, what do they say? They say, well, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I should just be able to do what I want. 
In other words, there is no right and wrong. There's no standard of morality. I should just get to make my decisions, choose my life, and I should not have to be held accountable for that. If you try to compose me in any way, you must be discriminating because in an autonomous culture, you are the only one that has a right to determine what is right for you. And there was a time in Israel's history in the Old Testament where the prophets spoke about a time where Israel left a theonomous culture and went into an autonomous type culture. And it describes this time period as a time where every man did was right in their own eyes. Because we are now a self-governing culture, we're seeing exactly what Madison said what happened to our governmental system. We're seeing our government become an illegitimate form of government. We're seeing unelected judges in the Supreme Court make decisions that they are enforcing as if it were law when that's not their role. They're usurping the, the legislative branch of our government in order to enforce laws that aren't actually on the books. And they're not using the lens of Christianity to interpret moral good, moral right and wrong as what was supposed to be infused into their uh, framework as judges of the Supreme Court. They're violating the very principles that are supposed to guide every decision. This is where we are in our culture. In a theonomous culture based on Christianity, where the majority believed in the gospel and in the, in the truths of the word of God, we wouldn't even be having political discussions about same-sex marriage, abortion, and other issues because it would just be common sense that these things are just the way they are because we're following the teachings of Jesus. But that's not the way it is in our culture anymore. And so today we're going to look in Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at the time where Jesus talked about marriage, where he talked about gender identity. In Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12, Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, tackles the very issues that our culture is wrestling with today and sheds some light on what we are to believe as the church of Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 1 of Matthew 19, the word of the Lord records this. It says, When Jesus had finished these sayings, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, healed their sick. Some Pharisees, these were teachers of religious law, they were the religious guys, they came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now you have to understand there's a cultural dynamic happening in this moment. In this time of Christ, divorce was happening all the time, much like it happens in our day. And it was happening for some serious and for some very petty reasons, just like it happens today. Now, these Pharisees, they knew the Bible. They had whole books of the Bible, the Old Testament, memorized. So when they asked Jesus this question, they weren't ignorant of what the Scriptures actually said. They were trying to trap Jesus to get him to give a wrong answer so they could bring accusations against him. But then here the Lord replies in verse 4, and this is brilliant. Jesus says, haven't you read the scriptures? Haven't you read the word of God? Here, Jesus, in his questioning back to them, he's not appealing to culture. He's not appealing to majority. He's not appealing to what is popular in that day or, or what seems to be the norm. He's appealing to the very word of God. Why? Because God's word never changes. God's word remains the same. And here Jesus, by asking this question, is implying that the will of God is the standard of morality for us all, for all time. There's no other way around it. You want to know what's right and wrong? Look to the word of God. 
In the day of Christ, just like today, there were many forms of marriages. There were many forms of families. There were many types of relationships. But here Jesus was acknowledging that God had a will and a plan for human life. There was only one form of human relationship that was acceptable in his sight. He continues, Jesus replied, The scriptures record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. And if you don't pay close attention to the word of God here, you will miss it. Right here, Jesus says, this is the reason why marriage exists. It's because he made them male and female. If there were not two distinct genders, there would be no marriage. It wouldn't need to exist. It wouldn't have a reason for being. But because we understand from the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 2, God had a purpose and a plan for marriage. Malachi tells us God desires for two to become one so that they will reproduce and reproduce godly offspring. Not just that they would reproduce more of the same species, but that each child born from this union would grow up to love God and honor him with their whole life. This is God's will for the people. And in order for that to happen, he needed to make two distinct genders. Intimacy and eroticism is a byproduct and a benefit of sex. It is not the focus of sex. But because in our culture we've elevated the byproduct, the feelings and, uh, and emotional benefits that we equate with sex above the purpose of sex, we now find ourselves in a sexually perverted, addicted, and saturated society where sex is worshipped now as God. Paul tells the church in 2 Timothy, he says, In the last days mankind will be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And that could be the byline of every news outlet in America. We can see this in our culture, where we are hell-bent now on changing the laws and also changing the Bible in order to affirm what we want to do with our lives. This is our culture. But marriage exists biblically so that a man and a woman can come together and through that union produce children that grow up to serve and honor the Lord. There is no other form of marriage other than heterosexual marriage that can produce such an outcome. It's impossible. And it's in that act of coming together that God unites the spirits of those spouses together to make them one, both in body and in soul. They reap the benefits of intimacy because of that union. Verse 6, Jesus says, Since they are no longer two, but now one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And so as Jesus is describing God's will for human relationships, he reveals that the union of one man and one woman is for life. That's the plan God designed for human relationships and sexuality, which implies that anything outside of this union, this relationship, is outside of the will of God and therefore is sin. It doesn't matter what other versions are included in the Bible. It doesn't matter that David had ten wives or, or Abraham had two wives. It doesn't matter what else we see in there. This is God's will and plan. Man has always perverted what God has designed because our hearts are sinfully wicked. Jeremiah says we don't even know how sinfully wicked our hearts are. James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 4, verse 17, he says, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. When you know God's will for your life and you choose to do the opposite, that is sin. It doesn't matter what the medical society wants to label it. It's sin. 
Any other kind of relationship, behavior, situation is sinful before God. So then the Pharisees, they, they think that, oh, we've got an answer for that. Let's ask Jesus a question. And so they ask him this very important question. Because you and I know in our culture, even today, our culture is constantly looking for loopholes, not just in the Bible, but elsewhere, to culturally justify or excuse the behaviors that don't line up with God's standard for morality. They did it in the time of Jesus. They do it today because human nature never changes. And so the Pharisees ask him in verse 7, says, Then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and then send her away? Well, that's a perfectly legitimate question. We found a verse in the Bible that disproves your theory, Jesus. Can you answer this question? So here Jesus continues. And I believe that, that you see... In Jesus' response, in verse 8, he says, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it is not what God had originally intended. You see, the Pharisees, the, the nation of Israel, were doing exactly what we do today. And when we come across passages of the Bible we don't like, we take these passages out of context to support our agenda. We look for loopholes. And here they thought they had Jesus cornered. But in Jesus' response, what he's telling them, in other words, he says, Moses... Gave you some grace, guys. He gave you some grace, knowing full and well you were going to do what you wanted to do anyway. You weren't going to honor God in your relationships, in your marriages, and in your sexuality. You were going to be selfish. You were going to mistreat your spouses. You were going to live outside of God's design. In the, in the Proverbs, there's a proverb of Solomon that says, It's better for a man to live on the rooftop of a house than inside the house with a quarrelsome wife. And so you know that using passages like this and others to justify divorce were right on the lips of these men. The same as it is today. We have people divorced because of irreconcilable differences. We have all different reasons why we divorce, and they did at the same time. And they were using this, uh, this command or this instruction of Moses as their justification. And see, the time of Christ, this was a very male-driven society, very chauvinistic. The men had all the authority. And so if he was to divorce his wife and kick her to the curb, she'd instantly be homeless and near worthless. Most likely not able to find another spouse because she'd be used goods and people would be afraid of adultery. So it was very bad for the women in those days. So to protect the victims, which would have been the wives in most cases, because of the selfishness of their husbands, these wives would have been left with nothing. Moses, through the grace of God, gave them a procedure to follow so he could cover people in his grace and give them an opportunity to have some good come out of the situation. If divorce was possible, then they had a chance to be remarried and be united with someone else. Without a divorce, they would have been left unable to remarry and to be taken care of. And I believe here Jesus is affirming that just because they could divorce, that didn't take away the sinfulness of the action of the divorce. Because in Jesus' own statement, he says this in verse 9. He says, I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery unless his wife has been unfaithful. God's will and design for marriage is that it is forever. Jesus makes the statement that what God put together, let no one separate. That includes you. No one. It's forever. It's eternal. It's a covenant. Jesus says, unless his wife has been unfaithful. If you divorce for any reason other than your wife cheating on you, men, Pharisees, teachers of law, you violate the very law you claim to teach. 
So, you know, unfaithfulness is the only acceptable reason to separate from Jesus. But even then, it is not what God originally intended. Because Jesus said, what God has put together, let no man separate. God's desire is not separation of the union, but eternal covenant. If you think about our relationship with him, how we can never be separated with the love of God. Every time we sin, we are being unfaithful to God. But instead of pushing us out, what does he do? He says, I will never leave you or forsake you. God gives us grace and in turn wants us to mirror that grace in our lives. God's standard is the moral standard. It's permanent. It's eternal. There are no other choices. There are no other versions of marriage. There are no other cultural excuses or situations that are exempt from this rule. And so to answer the question, is God discriminatory? Does he discriminate against the LGBT community? Does he discriminate against different groups of people? The answer is no. Why? Because God is the author of the moral standard. So every decision he makes is just. There is no unjustness to God's standards. He is holding everyone uh, to that righteous standard. He's not discriminating because everyone is held to the very same standard. And so therefore his judgment is fair. It's according to the rights and the regulations. God does not discriminate. And on the basis of the Constitution and the laws of our government... Any laws that agree with God's position can also not be unjust. They cannot be, they cannot be prejudicial, nor can they be unfair because they follow in line with the moral standard of God. Their basis is on, founded on the moral law of the one who gives us our rights. At most, we and God can be accused of intolerance and bigotry. Those are other scary words that we hear in our culture today, but the reality is a bigot is simply someone who is intolerant of someone else's beliefs. And we as the church of Jesus Christ, we are intolerant when it comes to sin. We're intolerant. But just because we're intolerant, that doesn't make us hateful or mean because we love even our enemies. We try to love people as we love ourselves. Just because we have a position against something doesn't mean we are hateful. So you see, even now in this moment, as Jesus is talking to these Pharisees, as he said, God's intention was there to never be divorced like ever. Just like Moses did in his day, Jesus is showing some grace, doing full and well the existence of sin in our hearts and the hardship of betrayal, even in marriage. And I think God's desire is that even in an adultery, there would be forgiveness and restoration so that divorce doesn't take place, but he understands the human condition and the severity of such a situation. So even though God holds a strong standard, he still offers us grace. In John chapter 1, verse 14, John, as he's describing Jesus, he says, Jesus was full of grace and truth, which means he never wavered on what was true, but he also never left out the grace. He never relented on his moral standard, even took a strong stance against sin. He said, if we don't repent, we will perish. But he never pushed us away. He served us, giving us grace so that we might be saved. See, Jesus isn't giving us an excuse to violate his will for marriage. He's giving grace to the victims of betrayal as we live in this broken world. But here in this situation, you can tell that the Lord's statements aren't very politically correct. The the temperature begins to rise as you can see his disciples, his very own followers, begin to be unsettled with this statement. Uh, even some unsettling could even be taking place in this room among the hearers today. In verse 10, Jesus' disciples then said to him, knowing what Jesus just said about marriage, they said, if this is the case, 
it's better not to marry. So after Jesus says God's will is for one man, one woman forever, no divorce at all, that's God's will. Be pure before marriage, be faithful in marriage, that's it. Anything else other than that is sin. His disciples say, well then, it's better not even to get married. In other words, that's pretty intolerant, Jesus. That kind of sounds like discrimination, Jesus. Doesn't God know about all the other isms and categories and different nuances for human sexuality and relationships that we've discovered? Surely it isn't one man and one woman with one way out if that is the last resort, because if that's the case, we might as well just sleep with whoever we want whenever we want, because we are going to fail in this standard anyways. And who wants to be stuck in a miserable relationship or situation? If I'm going to sin, it must be, might as well be on my terms. And that's a typical response in our day and in our culture, because deep down, our sinful nature is begging to be autonomous. Our sinful nature breeds a rebellious attitude towards God. It doesn't want God telling us how we should live. It wants to be affirmed in its decisions, not accountable for its decisions. But Jesus doesn't appeal to culture and his standards. He appeals to God's original design. He appeals to the truth and righteousness of who God is. And then he makes one other statement. Verse 11, he says, Not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those whom God helps. God is our rescuer. God is our helper. In this statement, think about it. Even while he's giving this teaching, he's thinking about people who have already divorced, who are about to divorce, who had sex before they're married, those who have different sexual passions and desires than the norm, those who are born with different challenges. God had everyone in mind when he was making this statement. And then he goes on, verse 12, he says, Some are born eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. And it's interesting here as he's using this illustration of the eunuch, the eunuch was a person that was castrated, therefore removing their ability to reproduce. And again, using this illustration, Jesus is affirming God's purpose for marriage, which is reproducing in the raising and developing of godly offspring. But here, by referring to the three different types of eunuchs, Jesus is revealing that he does know about the human condition. Some are born with different sexual proclivities and challenges. Some are forced into different sexual situations that can develop deeply traumatic psychological issues and desires through abusive and very emotionally stressful situations. Of all the studies I've looked at and researched that have tried to pinpoint the cause of uh, homosexuality and different types of gender and sexual disorders, not a single study can pinpoint the cause. They, they look at different physiological and biological factors and think they may have a strong influence of the cause, but they cannot pinpoint the cause. But what does unite and is a common factor in every study that's out there, over 30 studies on this issue, the leading factor and common factor in all the studies is the social environment of the child, which tells us that it's not necessarily the biological makeup of the child, it's the psychological influence of the child that creates these factors. And here Jesus affirms that some are born with issues, some have these challenges pressed into them by the environment they grew up in. And thirdly, some choose a life of celibacy because of their struggles to remain single and celibate in order to honor God because they cannot bring themselves 
into a marriage, a heterosexual union that is in line with God's will because of the issues that they face. Jesus understands what people struggle with. He understands you better than you understand yourself. And the fact remains that in every situation, God's will and design remains unchanged. Anything that exists outside of that design is unacceptable to God. It is sin. And there are people here today in this room, in this very room, that fall in at least one of these categories. There are people here today that had sex with someone who was not their spouse. Very few in our culture are celibate or are pure before marriage. You're actually a weirdo if you stay pure until you get married in our culture today. I mean, Tim Tebow is one of, one of the many who were professed to be pure before marriage, and he's just vilified and ridiculed in our culture and in our media. There are very few that are pure before marriage. There are very few that stay pure in marriage. There, ha- there are maybe some people here today who uh, might be one of the few who actually was able to stay pure before you got married. But even if that's the case, which I applaud you if it is the case, But Jesus said one time, if you've even lusted after somebody, it's the same as committing adultery in your heart before God. So even if you were one of the ones to make it, I'm 99.9% sure that one covers just about everybody in the room, right? So we all have our sin before God. There are people who have had divorces for other reasons other than adultery. There are people that struggle with gender identity and same-sex issues. Maybe even you haven't even acknowledged it or told anybody about that. We have different categories and groups of people in this place today. And you see, even though there's so many groups represented here in the Bible and in our culture, God does not discriminate against us because he holds us all accountable to the same standards, whether it's our sexuality, our relationships, our attitude, or our work habits. God's moral standard doesn't change. He calls us all to be holy as he is holy and perfect as he is perfect. But this is the amazing thing about the church of Jesus Christ because it's the love and grace of God that unites us all and takes us from where we are and turns us into something amazing for his honor and glory because we are all in need of his love and his grace. And many may say that the Christian stance and Vertical Life Church's stance on marriage is divisive. It's not divisive. It's actually something that can unite us together because it reminds us that we have all sinned and come short of God's glorious standard. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And even though we are all sinners, we all matter to God because in our sinfulness, God gives us grace to walk in new life. Even though we all deserve judgment, knowing the wickedness of our hearts, through Jesus Christ, God has offered us a way to be saved to be changed, to be delivered from our spiritual bondage and guilt of sin, and that's through his grace and our faith. See, the reason why we're facing the moral climate that we are in this world today, in the culture today, it's ultimately because this is a result of Christians going to church but not being the church, believing they could live like the world, as long, and as long as they sent their kids to church, they would grow up to be moral and upright citizens. This is a result of so many Christians leaving the gospel and true disciple-making ministry up to the next person. Oh, that's not my ministry, or I wouldn't know what to say. We make excuses for it. This is a result of Christians assuming that as long as there were laws on the books, that things would always remain the same. But the reality is laws don't change hearts and minds. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes hearts and minds. 
This is a result of Christians becoming apathetic to the word of God and letting repentance become just another nostalgic idea. The church today is bought into the greedy American dream. Where church is now more about consumerism. We consume our religion. And you can see that in the church buffet in any given city, in any, any given state, where there's churches of every flavor, kind, and, and type. It's more about the music and how good you feel when you leave than hearing real truth and letting God change your life. If anything, we are in this place in our culture today because Christians stopped being just that, Christ-like, following Christ. And we've given our nation away through apathy and injustice and sin and handed it over to our spiritual enemy who wants nothing more than to destroy us. We should be fighting at the polls, voting based upon the principles of our faith, the principles that formed this nation. We should be trying to cling to the freedoms our forefathers died to secure. Every vote in every election matters. It counts. The person in the White House will determine who sits on the Supreme Court, and this next president could forever change the course of this nation. Those things are vitally important because our leaders, though will never be perfect, they will either lead us into sin or they will lead us into repentance. They will either lead us away from the honor of God or lead us into the honor of God. Our leaders are so very important, but what's more important than who we vote for is how we live. We can't assume that having a Christian in the White House is going to change our lives. We have to be pursuing a relationship with Jesus Christ. There are three things, quickly, that we need to understand as we look at our culture and the way things are going as it pertains to the moral climate in our nation. And we'll close. Number one is that you need to guard your faith. If you read the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus over and over says, cling to your faith. Hold on to what you've been taught. Guard your heart and your faith. Jesus, later in Matthew, we'll get into this. Jesus said, you are going to be hated for being his disciple. You know, there are a lot of churches out there that do their very best to get along with everybody, and I think we should. But if you're not hated by somebody, you're not doing it right. Jesus said, you're going to be hated for being my disciple. If you're not hated, you're not doing this Christian thing right. Persecution's going to come. Paul said, in the last days, the people are going to hate what is good and love what is evil. And us being the bearers of the moral standard in this life are going to be the ones that are hated because we are connected to the name of Christ. The world is not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And our enemy is leading us further and further towards that reality by removing the Christian faith and the influence of the Christian principles that founded our nation and making it more and more politically intolerant and legally uh, illegal to live according to the faith and standards of the Bible. Number two, parents, you need to guard your family. You need to check in and not check out. We should be even more intentional about doing what's necessary to protect our children from potential predators that will exploit these new tolerance and inclusivity laws. This new decision from Target to let anybody use whatever bathroom they want to scares the lights out of me. Not because some transgender is going to use a bathroom that I'm in there, but the person who claims to be transgender that's not, that wants to prey on my family, that's what scares me. 
You got to check in. You can't check out. You can't assume that we still live in the days where you can send your kids to the restroom unattended while you're enjoying a meal at Applebee's. You cannot do that anymore. You need to check in. As your pastor, I don't want you to live in a state of fear. The Bible says that we've not been given a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. We are to not live in fear, but Jesus also said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You need to check in. You need to know what's going on in the world. You need to know what's happening at your kid's school. Just this week, the man sent his daughter to school. She was jumped in the bathroom and died. It's a very different world than what used to be. You can't be a lazy parent and expect your child to never be in danger. You need to guard your family. And number three, you need to guard your heart. This is what has taken the church down. This is why so many people have left the church. Because we got prideful, assuming things and expecting things and not requiring anything of ourselves. As the social climate becomes more and more volatile towards the Christian faith, you need to guard your heart from pride. Pride is going to keep you from loving those who God loves. God loves the whole world. He doesn't categorize people who is loved and who's not loved. He loves the whole world, and pride will keep you from loving who God loved. Pride will keep you on the defense, keeping you separated and segregated, but love will lead you to engage people with the good news. The gospel is the only chance people have to have a new life. Love will lead you forward. Pride will make you defensive. We can't lose sight of the fact that we are no better. Our sin is no different in our eyes. It's no different in the eyes of God. We need to repent just as much as the next person, someone that struggles with a different temptation. It's by his grace we're saved, not by our own merit. Jesus said that not everyone can accept the truth. Not everyone can accept his standards for morality. Only those who God helps. And it's our job as the church to engage people with his love so that through his grace and his power, they can be delivered from their sin and accept Jesus as their Lord. The fact that we don't struggle with certain sins shouldn't puff us up with pride. It should make us compassionate for those who do. Guard your faith, guard your family, guard your heart. Let's bow our heads in this place today. Lord, as we are looking at these very controversial issues, and we're looking at the Word of God, we don't stand here on any level assuming that we're better or greater than anyone else. We are all in need of a rescuer. We are all in need of a Savior who can take us from where we are and lead us to what you've called, designed, and desired for us to be. My sin is no different than the next. God, give us all hearts that are tender, all hearts that can be used to send the gospel message out, to reach people who are far from you, people that have no idea how much love and grace is just waiting for them to enjoy. God, I pray for those that have experienced these painful issues in their relationships, God, who've gone through these, these damaging situations, God, who's whose minds and hearts and spirits have just been affected deeply by the different uh, just seasons of life that they've encountered. God, I pray that your mercy and grace would fall on them in this place. God, that your love would fill their heart. And they would see that 
they're not coming to you in fear, but they're coming to you in faith. And when they come to you, God, that they will find the grace that they need to continue on and hope again for tomorrow. Lord, I just pray for our culture, God. I pray for our leaders. I pray for the election that's coming up, God. I pray for the primaries, God. I pray that your name would be glorified, God. I pray that you would raise up a godly leader that would lead us to honor you again. But God, whatever you have planned, whatever you have ordained and in store, God, I pray that our church would not lose sight of the mission and the ministry that you've laid before us that we would not get apathetic or lazy to the high calling that we have in Jesus Christ, that we would not lose sight of who we are in you and what you've called us to do. And I just pray this in the name of Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around in this place, just out of respect for one another, as so we go into a time of prayer. Question to ask yourself today. In lieu of the standards of God and well, we understand that what he expects from us. Ask yourself, what have you been hiding? What have you been struggling with that you've been trying to keep secret? What have you been trying or what have you been making excuses for so that you don't have to admit the truth to yourself? For those of you who are married, how is your marriage reflecting God's will for mankind. First Chronicles 28.9 says that God sees every heart. He knows every plan and thought. There is nothing hidden from God. He sees everything. We don't get away with anything. There will be a day where we stand before God and give an account for our lives. Even every idle word we have spoken will be something we stand for. What have you been hiding? Today in just a moment when we go to sing, I invite you to come down, down to the front of the stage to this first row of seats and just pour your heart out to God. Get in line with this truth. Let what you've been hiding come out and let his grace wash over you as he forgives you of that sin and those decisions that passed, those things that have been haunting you. Let his grace and forgiveness and love wash over you and begin to bring healing to your heart. Confess those things before God turn away from those things and begin to follow the Lord and his will and plan for your life. Who have you been refusing to love? Who have you been hating? Who have you let in your pride puff your heart up against thinking that you're greater than someone else? Confess your pride and arrogance and ask God to fill your heart with his love so that you can love those that he loves. Let's be the church. Let's be what God called us to be. That practice begins in this place. And that what we do in here will go fill the streets out there. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever God is dealing with you in your heart, whether it's an addiction, whether it's an attitude, whether it's a habit, whatever is going on, confess those things before God. And let's give him glory in this place. Father, I just pray for everyone here. God, as we stand and we sing, God, I pray that you would get glory by the response. In Jesus' name, amen.